You are listening to Courageous Leadership, the podcast with me, Diana Osagi, the author of the book, Courageous Leadership. This is the place where inspirational leaders and everyday heroes share their inside stories of leadership. Today's episode features a guest sharing their mistakes, mishaps and triumphs. Let's dive in. It is great to have everybody listening with us this afternoon, this morning, wherever you are. I've got a fantastic guest with me today. Her name is Dr. Karen Edge. And my first question, if you can, one sentence, tell us what you do for a living. So I'm an academic at UCL and I work with leaders and policymakers locally and nationally and around the world to try and help education get better. Oh, that sounds too interesting just to move straight on. Come on, what bit of your job do you love? I think on, on the heels of having taught 28 hours live of research methods last week, I think what I love the most is working with, with students and leaders and just talking about what do we have to learn and how can we learn it and what can we do to get better? Wow, love it. Okay, so we are on an MMT journey, mistakes, mishaps and triumphs. And really it's about showing to people who are listening, showing to other leaders that we all get it wrong sometimes. We all think it's gonna be fine, that a curveball comes and the other times when we get it completely right and it's triumphant. So where would you like to start? A mistake, a mishap or a triumph? I'll have mistake. <laughs> mistake. Okay. Let's start there. So I think I, I, I thought about mistake quite a lot and there's been many, but I think there's one that consistently gets in my way and the mistake that I still need to not keep making. And I think that that's when something goes wrong, mostly when it's a relationship or if it's a behavior and someone isn't, is, is not being fair, they're not being kind, they're not being professional, when they are not leading with facts, I have a tendency to step back and think, oh, it must be me. It, it, it must not be the person who is not being fair or not being kind. It has to be a problem with me. And I, my biggest mistake is not moving quickly enough from spotting something that's not okay to realizing it's not me to saying this is not acceptable. And I think it's a mistake that I've made over and over in my career. And now I try to shorten that window from spotting something, make sure I'm right, make sure I've you know backed up that I'm right. And then saying, this is just not on because I'm in a position now where I have a certain amount of power. And if I'm not willing to stand up and say, you, know, you cannot treat me like this, or you cannot treat that person like this, no one else will feel like they have the power to do that. Wow, so it's almost like you've, whether you want to or not, you have a responsibility to. Yeah, and I think that the issue I have is that I'm really good at standing up for other people. I'm really good at, at spotting my, my mistake is not advocating for you and how you need to be treated. My biggest mistake is advocating for how I need to be treated. And I think that as a leader, you need to get good at that because if someone can see you standing up and saying, this is not okay anymore, then they will feel that they can also stand up and do that. And that's, it's a chronic mistake. It's not, it's not a one-off, but it's the one that has, has plagued me. And I think a lot of women leaders through most of their career. And that's the one that sort of, when I think about it, even now, like I, you know, I could very easily cry because it still happens. And in the pandemic, it's probably happening more often. 
Yeah, I was, when I was coaching women and we set up the Academy of Women's Leadership, one of the things that we were talking about was the internal negative self-talk. And we said to some of the women on the cohort that if somebody stood in front of you and spoke to you the way you speak to yourself, you'd probably smack them in the face. Yeah. But you speak to yourself in this critical, you know, all day, every day sort of way. And then when other people speak to you, like, because you recognise that language in your own self-talk sometimes, you don't think there's anything wrong with it. But if, you, if that person did stand in front of you and said to you, your bum looks big in that, no, you can't wear bright colours, no, you don't look good with any makeup, and just kept going, just kept going, <laughs> you know, you might be able to recognise, it is that recognising that talk, whether it's from myself or from someone else, no, it's not okay. And I it's think that is, it, it's, it's, a, it's a lesson to learn and keep learning, right? So yes. I, I think that's the hardest thing is to, is to think of it. It, it, it the, the mistake mishap and triumph is brilliant and I'm a massive fan of the program. But I, but I think for me, thinking about a mistake was, was really tough because I think I've had a, a chronic list of things that have, have been mistakes. But often when I looked at the, the thing that linked them all together, it was my lack of willingness to say no. That is not okay. And I drag the mistake with me and the implications of, of the mistake of not standing up for myself, for my own mental health and well-being, and my own ability to, to lead amazingly has been too great. So thanks for the reminder. It was helpful. That's okay. I say to women, I say to men, I say to everybody, because you spent a long time making the mistake, don't feel you have to keep it. Yeah. I think sometimes we're so invested because you know I've spent years being this way. I have I've owned always <laughs> I've always been like this. My family were like this before I was. Well, it's, it's okay. You can let go of that now, but you're right. It, it's not that one off. You have to keep doing it day by day. You say, okay, next time I remember, next time I remember until one day you remember on time. And I'm wait, I'm waiting. So like, I, th I think one of the, when I get messages from colleagues that are dealing with difficult things, especially people who are saying negative things or just when it becomes just the slog, I often send them the gift that has wonder, the old school Wonder Woman with her yes. bracelets. And she's like, sting, sting, sting. So whenever, like I, I as you do, I coach a lot of, of young women who are coming up and they're like, well, what do I do when people say this? It hurts my feelings. And I'm like, sting, sting, sting. And I forget that, you know, when I was little, I wasn't allowed to watch Wonder Woman because my mom thought it was sexist. And I think she was right with, you don't need, you know, superhero with their boobs out. But I think I, I, I need to get my bracelets out more often, I think. I love that because my name's Diana and she was called Diana Prince. I know. But I used to spin around in the playground. So my Go skirt would rise up and be Wonder Woman and show everybody my knickers until my teacher said that is not good for a six-year-old to be doing this. Well, funny. I think I, I never wore skirts, but I definitely spun around. So I think, I think we all need we all need a bit of that. Um, a bit it, of that. Those bracelets. Oh. Absolutely. All right. So we've done mistake. Where next? A mishap or a triumph? I think I think mishap. So people who know a bit about my work, we do quite a lot of global research, which requires us to travel and to be in different places. And I've learned a few lessons. So I'll, I'll tell you the, the mishap that comes to mind and then I'll tell you what I learned from it. So I was working with British Council and DFID and PLAN and we were doing a research study about 
international partnerships between schools in the UK, Africa, and Asia. And we'd done our huge epic sample selection and we'd picked schools in different countries that were partnered with schools in different regions. And we were going to do some data collection. So in most countries, I hired researchers because you don't need me flying in from England to do research in different countries. But I had been asked to go do a talk in Ghana. So I took on my grad students with us and we'd made a plan. We knew the three schools that we had to go to. One, we couldn't find an address for, which we thought was fine. And we'd hired a driver and the driver was unable to meet the commitment. So we landed and we got to the hotel and I'd never been, I guess I'd been to West Africa once. We had to get talk to the person at the hotel and say, we need a driver and we need them for probably three days. So we ended up with this driver who's, his name is Hamza. We're still friends 10 years later. And we literally had to drive around Ghana and at one of the, we knew the province it was in. So we had to go to, to Eastern province, but we didn't know where the school was. So we literally had to ask people at every step. And by the time we got to the school in, in amazing West African fashion, there were like six people in the car and we we managed to find the school in the middle of nowhere. So we thought we'd won the day. So our next flight was just to, to Sierra Leone. We were doing it for plan, plan had, had, you know, organized it. So we'd be picked up at the airport. It was still quite conflicty at the time. And I'm there with a young grad student. We get out of the airport and our driver's not there. So we call and there's no one answering the phone. So then we have three options. We can either take the driver where often you can get hijacked. We can take the hovercraft, which no one would sign off on because occasionally the hovercraft sinks, or you can take the <gasps> helicopter, which had been stopped because you couldn't, because it kept crashing. So I was there responsible. So I'm leading a team, I'm leading a project, and I have to make a quick call about how we're going to get from the airport to the city. And I, we chose the hovercraft, which was being driven by a British ferry driver on his holiday. I'm pretty sure there was alcohol involved. So <laughs> We sat as close to the door where in case we started to sink, we could escape. I had my calm face on, like everything is fine. This is not a problem. Inside, I was like a basket case. And I think what, what that taught me is pretty much now when things start to go wrong and I'm like, I'm not in Sierra Leone deciding about the hovercraft or the helicopter. And it's, I, it's, it's served as, you know, I travel a lot with my son. We travel a lot of places that people just can't imagine we travel and we travel in ways that I think I've learned how to work. So we're incredibly flexible. We understand that everyone is doing their best. We understand that, you know, shit's gonna happen and that you need a plan A and a plan B and a plan C. But if you don't have those, that you'll be able to solve it because there's people who can come to your rescue. And I yeah. think that, you know, leading with kindness, you know, even when things go wrong, my son was very sweet. The dog ate through our internet this week, literally. So we have a pandemic puppy who ate the internet. I am like the sweet face of the And what my son said after we, after I rewired the wire and moved it to another room and set everything up is he sat there and said, you know what, mom, you're really good at solving problems under stress and you always look calm. And I should have slipped him 20 pounds at the time, but I thought, I think that's what I've learned. I've learned that, you know, it takes a lot to ruffle my feathers. And if you, if you think you can ruffle them, you know, keep going. It's it's the absolute juxtaposition to my mistake, right? Yes. Country where there's conflict, where we're in danger, and I'm fine, and I will stick up for myself. Have somebody at work say something that really hurts my feelings, and I cower. And I think for me as a leader, it's it's balancing people's perception of that. I think the people who know me well know that there's those both sides. But I think it's taught me a lot about what I want people on my teams to be like, which is all, don't make an assumption that you know someone based on what they show you. 
and that everyone is is leading a, a different experience than you think. So Diana, you mentioned my out of office. When I'm out of the office during the pandemic, I will put messages on that say, you know, we're in lockdown, we're in isolation. Please remember to be kind to people because you don't know what they're going through. So I think my my mishap has taught me a lot about just being resilient and it'll be fine. You know, worst comes to worst, you may not eat for a few days or worst comes to worst, you might get injured. But, you know, I've been hijacked in different countries and, you know, you'll be fine in the end. It's just a bit rocky for a bit. Wow. That's that's inspiring. I love it. Uh, I love that. It'll be fine. In the grand scheme of things, it's going to be okay. Yep. It's going to be okay. Let's have your triumph. Go on, Dr. So, Karen, talk to us. So for triumph, I actually went back. We're going old school for the triumph. So when I was when I was young, so when I was like 15, I was a lifeguard. And this was sort of one of the pivotal moments, I think, that shaped me. So when I, I guess, when I was in year 11, I studied economics and we were talking about X and Y theory. And my dad was an MBA grad and I went to him and he taught me about sort of Japanese management theory. And then I became a lifeguard and in the second year I had my own pool with my own staff. So I was very, I, w I remember going to my dad and saying, and I'll, I've said this story a couple of times, but not the background. And I went to my dad and said, okay, I'm a leader now. I need some theory for my practice. And my dad gave me epic, like Hershey and Blanchard textbooks about organizational behavior. And so I became a management geek when I was pretty little. But what sort of my triumph was, by the time I was 17, I was in charge of the professional development for 350 lifeguards across the city of Ottawa. And I was, I was the technical specialist. And one of the things that came in around that time was the face masks that you put on if you're doing mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation because of uh, pandemic issues. So I knew that I needed to get 360 people excited about how to use a face mask. And that that was a huge learning task because they were young, they were busy. So I realized immediately that it needed to be fun that there needed to be an element of competition, that it shouldn't be one person against each other, but if I made it a team against a team, that it might work. And so I set up a contest that we would time people as we ran around the city, checking out all the pools, doing our, our PD visits. And one of the things that they would have to do is be ready at any moment to open, anyone on the team had to be ready to open, open the face mask, get it open and put it onto whatever the, the, the dummy was that we were practicing. So what was really interesting is the innovation that that spawned. So people, some teams realized really quickly that if you left it out in the sun in its case, the plastic would become more pliable, which meant opening would be much faster. Some people realized that if you kept it by the first aid kit. So what that did was it, it taught me that I was right. My instincts were right make learning fun, make it purposeful, tie it to the fact that they need to be good rescuers, make it slightly competitive, but not on your own. So you don't feel it's your grade, it's the group's grade and have an epic prize. So I think I sent them pizza for a week. They got five different orders of pizza for their team, but we ended up having a, a citywide contest to see which park was able to open their face mask the fastest. And I've taken that sort of spirit of fun and energy in, in professional development that I do now, that you know it has to be fun, there has to be an element of competition. But if you'd asked me when I was 17, if I would learn that lesson over face masks, I would have said, hell no. Hell no. Oh, that's really, really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing those with us. It's, it just opens a window into leadership and all these perspectives, it just helps us to understand that it's all different, but it's all good. If people want to engage with you, do you write blogs or books or have a website? Can people get hold of you? Yeah, so I have, I have two books coming out that I need to finish um, that will hopefully be finished in the next little while. One with Routledge, one with Bloomsbury on our Generation X Leader Study. 
you can get me on Twitter at Dr. Karen Edge. You can get me by email really easily at k.edge at ucl.ac.uk. And I'm around. So I think we're all around for the next little while. There's no traveling. Usually my schedule has some big trips every term. And now I'm, I'm pretty much a stay at home, cleaner, cook, academic, <laughs> you know. I'm puppy, puppy repairer of internet cable. Yes, I did step on it. <laughs> Pride, but yeah, so I think the same as everyone. But thanks so much. It's a brilliant idea. I was really nervous, just so you know, and feel. Free but you were great. You were yourself. And that's all we ever wanted. Well, and I, I think it's quite tough. Like I'm really easy, you know, thinking about mistakes. I was thinking about the mistakes that I've actually repeated, and that was the one that that got me. So oh. I, I promise to try harder, Diana, with my bracelets. With your bracelets, one that, woman bracelets. That, that my mistakes become less frequent. Fantastic. It has been a pleasure being with you. Thank you so much once again for agreeing to be with us on Mistakes, Mishaps and Triumphs. Thank you. You have been listening to Courageous Leadership, the podcast with me, your host, Diana Rezaghi, the author of the book, Courageous Leadership, available on Amazon now. You can reach me on LinkedIn, Twitter or via the website, Courageous Leadership. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Until then, goodbye.